Good morning, church. If you would, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to be a little bit starting before chapter 7 and then working our way through chapter 7 today. Um, We're so glad for you to be in the room. We're glad that you're tuning in online. I wish that I could see all of your faces. And like Mason said earlier, chime in. Let us know that you're watching. Um, You can comment in the comment section. And if you're new here, we'd love to know that you're a guest with us. You can fill out an information card in the seat back in front of you and drop it in the give boxes on the right and the left of the exit doors on your way out. We'd love to know about your visit, and we promise to contact you in a respectful way. Now, we've been in Nehemiah for, this is our seventh week. We're halfway, okay? This is the halfway mark with the narrative of Nehemiah. And in chapter seven, um, we're going to see just this pivot point. And I want to catch us up to this point. Basically, God's people have been in exile. They had rebelled against God, and they had been scattered among all the nations. And now they're being gathered back together. They had repented, and Nehemiah had prayed that God would fulfill his promise to his people, that he would again gather them together in one place and set his name on them, that there would be God's glory would just be among them and declared among them. And so they've been in exile for 70 years. They come back with this very specific task in this book of rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the security around the city so that in the future that they could worship there. So the the first step was they were going to try to build this wall. And so today we're going to see the completion of the wall and then see the next episode of what God is doing in their life and so in, in this story and history. So It kind of reads today like the end of of season one, and now we're getting into season two of all the episodes of Nehemiah, okay? And so uh, pray with me as we read through it. We're going to start in chapter six, verse 15, and it's going to be on the screen as well. You can read along. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shekiniah, the son of Era, and his son, Johanan, (laughs) had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported many words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanina and Hananiah the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to to his town." 
Now skip ahead to verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 100 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple's servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this believing that it is your words. We believe that it's profitable for instruction and reproof. And we pray today that as we open our hearts and minds to your words and we open your word and look at it, I pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd correct us where we need to be corrected, that you'd comfort us where we need to be comforted, and that once again, the gospel would be exalted and that you would use this exaltation of who you are and what you've done to draw people to yourself. We believe that that is ultimate. That is the purpose that we've gathered here today, to exalt you and who you are and what you've done. And we believe that when we do that, you are faithful to do the work, that you can, you can call people to yourself who seem very, very far from you, and that you can woo our hearts once again into your purposes when we've fallen idle. And I pray that that would happen again today, and I pray it for your namesake, Jesus. Amen. One of my favorite things to do is to just head off into the woods and get on a trail and, and kind of lose myself in the woods. But several times in my life, I've gotten to hike sections of the Appalachian Trail. I don't know if you know what this is, but it's a trail that's about 2,200 miles long, and it goes from Georgia up to Maine. And I've only hiked little sections of this trail. And all of the sections are marked with blazes. So if you've ever known what a trailblaze is or a trailblazer is, it's basically these marks that let you know you're on the trail. And this is what they look like. This is a blaze on the Appalachian Trail. And the Appalachian Trail has these white six-inch uh, blazes on trees. And once you get to one, you can see another one in the distance. This is another picture of one. So you can see that once you round a corner and once you get to one, you can see the next one. And, and they're these really important milestones as you walk this trail because otherwise you would get lost. And they were very important to me anytime that I've taken my kids on this trail because it was motivation. I would basically create a competition where whoever could see the next one would get a point. And then they would go to the next one. And by the time you get to the next one, and eventually we would lose count. Um, so far, that doesn't work with mile markers on the road. But my point is this. Along the journey, there's, there's these places where you can see where you've come from and where you can see where you're going. And that's what this moment is in the context of God's people in Nehemiah. They come to a milestone where they've completed the wall, and then suddenly they see, okay, this is the next milestone. They're not even able to celebrate it yet. We don't even get to the dedication of the wall till chapter 13. But I want to acknowledge what has happened when they complete the wall. And they serve to let you know, these milestones serve to let you know that you're still on the path, you're still, you haven't lost yourself, you're moving forward. And all along this journey of faith, we have these moments like this where we say, okay, here's where I've come, and here's where we're going. 
and, and in this moment in God's word, I really believe this serves as a milestone for this group of people. The work has been finished and it's just begun. So we're going to walk through what it looked like for the work to be finished on the wall and the rest of the work to have begun in chapter 7. Verse 15, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And three things about the work being finished. God's promise is being fulfilled, His people are being empowered, and the, God's power is being displayed. Now, I'm going to walk through all three. The first one is this, God's promise being fulfilled. Now, it had been six months to the day, it's been six months since Nehemiah had asked for permission to come back. Six months later, he's had an 800 to 900 mile journey with a group of God's people. They come back and they begin building this huge task of rebuilding the wall. It's a town that not many people live in. There's very few people. It's vast, and there's threats from all around. They could have, they could have lost focus along the way, but they did not lose focus. They overcame obstacles. They had people distracting them that were threatening them, that were scorning them and making fun of them, saying, you can't complete this. What do you think you're doing? And instead, they didn't listen to that. They just kept working. They held the trowel in one hand, the sword in the other, and they continued doing the work. But their work is most importantly understood within the context of God's big picture promise. If you remember back in chapter 1 where Nehemiah first prays, he calls out to God to remember his promise to his people. God's promise is ultimately being fulfilled in the work being completed. Back in chapter 1 in verse 9, it says, If you will remember me, Lord, remember what you said, that if we turn our hearts back to you, that you're going to gather your people back together. And so this is the first phase in God fulfilling this promise. They've already come back to begin rebuilding the temple, to re begin restoring God's word, and now the wall is being uh, built to, to form security around the people. And so this is a fulfillment of God's promise, ultimately, that God is faithful, that he keeps his promises to his people. And we have to understand it not as just this huge celebration of they accomplished a really amazing task, which that's true too, but that God is the most faithful. He always keeps his promises. He never lies. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So everything that he said that he would do, he brings it to pass. He's promised that when we trust in him, that will give us all the grace that we need to do the things he's called us into. And this is one of those moments for God's people. The work is fulfilled. The principle behind it is this, that God is always faithful, even when we're faithless. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, even if we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So when he's promised to do something, he's going to fulfill it. And the, the wall being rebuilt is ultimately a sign of God's faithfulness. And it's a huge milestone of accomplishment. What they had done was a really big deal. They had been working for 52 days. That's basically a little over seven weeks. So you guys remember the new year, January 1st? You guys remember where you were for New Year's Eve? Okay, next week is seven weeks, okay? They built a huge wall in seven weeks around a city. That's the span of time. And everyone who's looking on there going, something amazing is happening here. It wasn't because they got organized or because they had good leadership. God used those things but ultimately, it was because God's people were empowered by him. And even their enemies were able to see it. 
They had a mind to work. That's how it describes them in chapter 3. It required every person playing their part, taking their role in the rebuilding of the wall, and they could not have accomplished all that they accomplished in these 52 days if God wasn't giving them strength and power. And not only could they be witnesses of that, their enemies were looking on and saying, there's no way they could have accomplished this without God's help. It was completely evident. And so, however, this is how you need to understand the work of the wall. How big was the project? Well, it was big enough for other people to look at it and say they could not have done that unless there was something supernatural. It was big enough for others to see it who did not fear God and say this was some kind of miracle. I don't know if you've ever witnessed God's power working like that where there is no, there is no worldly natural explanation for someone's heart being turned back, for something that God, only God could accomplish and they got to participate in it. And the last thing is this, they, his power is being displayed to the nations. The people around them are looking on and saying, look at verse 16, and when all their enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The milestones that we walk through in our faith, um, they serve as not only milestones for ourselves, but a lot of times for others looking on to say, there's something true and real about the God that they're following. And that's what happens in this passage. There's a a real before and after story, not only for God's people, but for his enemies. The enemies were looking at God's people and saying, you know what, we could take them. You ever walked into the room and said, I I think I could take them. Every guy does that, okay? They're like wondering, am I bigger than them? The enemies of God's people were looking at God's people and saying, they're weak enough that we could take them out. But then something shifts in their mindset. When they saw what God was doing through his people, they said, wait a minute, we cannot. Their self-esteem dropped. There's a before. When they were looking at the comparison of themselves to other people, they thought they looked pretty good. But suddenly when you begin to look at God as your reference point, you don't look at yourself as if you're doing good anymore. Your self-esteem will drop if you are counting on yourself to be better than other people. If you're measuring your own progress by the people around you, that is not a good measuring stick, okay? You measure yourself based on God's holiness and everyone will be humbled. Every single person is going to fall to their feet and say, God help me. Because there is no hope that we have. There's so much delusion when we begin to compare our progress with other people. We think, man, I'm, pre- I'm doing pretty good because I know a few people behind me. I know a few people ahead of me. But as long as you've got more people that you know that are behind you in the path, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And these enemies looked on God's people and they, they fell in their esteem when they saw that there was work that was being accomplished that only God could do. The task was too big and the workers were too weak. And when the results were beyond what they knew they were able to accomplish, they were, they were saying, hey, wait a minute, something else is at, at work here. And the result for these enemies is that they were afraid of God. They went from trying to make others afraid (laughs) to being afraid themselves. I love the picture of them tuck, tail, and run. They're like, wait a minute. But they didn't completely go away. They're still kind of pestering Nehemiah with these letters. Apparently, Tobiah was was by marriage connected to the nobles that Nehemiah had to lead. In other words, the opposition was just never going to go away. 
it was never going to, like, there was never going to be this day where it's like, okay, now it's easier and we don't have to worry about those bad guys. It was always going to be there. And he had family connections that were never going to let him get away from this problem. Hey, I'm sure some of you got testimony of that, right? <laughs> We're like, I'm, ne- I'm always going to have to work with this person. That's Nehemiah's story. He was always going to have to work with these nobles that were connected to his enemies, and his enemies were always going to be trying to intimidate him. But God's power was ultimately on display, not by their greatness, but by the limitations that they had. And, and in our limits, this is what I want you to know. This is the principle. Um, for us as God's people, the greatest opportunity for God to show off his power is not in our greatness and in our success. It's in the reality of our weaknesses and limitations where God shows his greatest strength and then others can look on it and say, you know what? They couldn't have done that. They could not have pulled that off. And for those that will hold on to their own self-esteem instead of looking at God's greatness, that's called pride. And you can be prideful and think really terrible things about yourself. And you can be prideful and think great things about yourself. Pride comes in many, many ways. Sometimes people who have really low self-esteem, it it comes from this place of pride where they really want to think good things about what they've accomplished. So humility is not thinking uh, less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's a popular quote. I love this other one, and I've already quoted this, well, actually not from Dwight Moody. He says this, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Nobody goes away empty when they come to God's throne unless they're coming full of themselves. And I've already quoted this from C.S. Lewis a few weeks ago, but I love this quote. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. Of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. Ultimately, that's what pride is. It's always looking down on other people and not seeing the greatness of who God is and what he's accomplishing in the world. And the limitations of God's people actually was the, the opportunity for God's greatness to be seen. That was where it was seen. So God's help is magnified in the limitations of his people, in the, and it's in that space that his power was made perfect. The opposition continues, like I mentioned, and then moved on. And I want, before I move on to this second point, I want to I just acknowledge some milestones for us as a people, okay? I feel like it's a big deal. I've been here for 14 weeks, and I'm super excited to still be here. I'm loving you guys. It's great. Hey, last week we had 85 people in the service, and I was like, that is the most that we've had since COVID. It is so good to see people's faces. And if you're online today, I'm glad that you're online too. I'm glad you're chiming in. I love that God is gathering a group of people in his name. Some of you haven't even met one another because there's new people since you haven't been back together. And that is a great gift that God is gathering a group of people for his work to be demonstrated and displayed, for him to show off his power, to show off what he's like and who he is in this community in this time and place. And so there's a lot of things that we've accomplished There's a lot of good things happening. This week I had Byron, that's our church administrator, send me the names of everybody that's serving in uh, Bellwether Kids. And I love it. This calendar is getting filled up with people that are saying, yes, I will love and pray for and serve by watching children during this time. And they're loving kids right now. There's unnamed people, right? That God knows who they are. He knows what they're doing. And that's a huge milestone for us. 
There, it's a huge milestone that K through fifth grade is meeting over in the White House right now. It's a huge deal that they're getting to hear about King Jesus and there's people that are praying over their lives and anticipating great things for them and investing the gospel in this next generation. That's a milestone for us as a people. It's a huge deal. And we should be able to say, God, thank you. You're doing good things. And then here's what I also want you to know, that every single milestone feels like a finish line for just a, a real slight minute. And then you realize this is the start of a next thing, right? And that's what we get to in Nehemiah. You say, okay, great, the wall is finished. We've still got opposition. And then the real work begins. The work is accomplished, yes. But the real work began to start because the purpose of Nehemiah going back and having this burden for God's place and for his people wasn't to just build a wall. That's just an exterior security guard. He wanted God's worship to be restored in his place. He wanted a community of people to be gathering and worshiping the God of the universe. And so the wall was just kind of this exterior. And we have been given great milestones to celebrate as a church. I love, somebody came in this morning like, I love this facility. I'm like, I know, it's great. I love this space too. I love that we're known as the white church on the corner. I love that. It's a great thing that people, but here's the, here's the one thing I want to warn us about, okay? There was, a, there was a moment in our history where we were setting up and tearing down and everybody was working shoulder to shoulder and there was a way that everybody felt the mission of God. They felt like they were participating in something great. And what I don't want us to see is that four walls and a piece of property kind of closes the mission for us. It's just a place, it's just a place. This is just a place. And our cry, our desire is that God's work would continue, that we'd see the finish line that we're at right now and that we would see the beginning point of what God's going to do in the future. And that's exactly where Nehemiah is with this group of people. So as soon as the wall is complete and the gates are set, he didn't go, great, I can finally sit down. He got up and he got after it. And he started building a community. And he does three things. He begins to appoint roles, he delegates his authority, and then he names and knows the citizens of this community. And I want to work through chapter 7 and just make a few observations. These are not the only things going on, but these are some things going on in this chapter. The work begins for Nehemiah. The people are the real work. You guys know this. We have several people in our congregation that are into commercial development. We have like the state development person that goes to this church. And that means that we're constantly imagining what does it look like for this area and this region and this city to be revitalized? What does it look like? And, and you know as well as I do that a city isn't built with, with houses and, and commerce. It's built with a group of people who are committed to a place to do life together. And the same thing is true about a church. It's not a property, it's a people. And this pivot point in the book of Nehemiah, it, it moves from building a wall to building a community of faith that would, would provoke a national revival among God's people in his place. And my prayer for us is that we would see that as the beginning point. Now, he appoints roles. <clears throat> and before I move into this, I just want you to know, I don't... I don't believe that there's anyone in this room until you see Jesus face to face that God has finished using you purposefully in his kingdom. By God's grace, you aren't where you were, but by God's grace, 
He's continuing to transform you and surround you with things that he wants you to do, works that he's prepared in advance for you. And so the people begins to be the work. And he appoints these three people, these roles, um, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. This group, all, these, all three of these were associated with the worship of God. So they all were basically professional um, ministers in some way. The gatekeeper were like pro-ushers, pro okay? They were gatekeepers for who could come into the temple. They were like security guards for that. The singers, obviously, they were facilitating God's, and they had like 245 of them, male and female. Can y'all imagine what it sounded like? Listen, today I was blessed already. But, I mean, 245 singers, like, joining together. And, and, and then uh, they have Levites, gatekeepers, and singers. So all three of them normally would have had a role within the temple. But in this context, he said, look, I know what you do professionally, but I need all hands on deck for guarding this city. Even though they had a wall, the work of guarding the city was still happening. Psalm 84 talks about the gatekeepers like this, and, and, and you've got to imagine that they are kind of the lowest rung in this progression of, of people that, that worked in the temple. Um, one of the commentaries I read this week kind of compared them to the janitorial staff, okay? And he appoints them to this role, and Psalm 84 verse 10 describes this role like this, and he's, he's crying out, in, in verse 10, it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousands el thousands elsewhere. elsewhere. I'm going to read that again. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He's basically saying, hey, it is more valuable to me that to do the lowest responsibility in the life of God's people than to go dwell somewhere else. To have great privilege unknown. I'd rather take out the trash for God's people than to go dwell in the tents of wickedness. Serving God's purposes in the world are more important to me than any other privilege that I could, that I could grasp at. So he begins to appoint these roles, Levites, priests, the singers, and he describes it as the cities wide in verse 4, but the inhabitants are few. There's still enemies. There's still real security risk. And he not only gives them these roles, but he delegates authority. He delegates his own authority. He's the governor at this point over the region. It says in, in chapter 2 that it was 12 years that he was the governor over this area. And so he begins to give this role of leadership of governor to his brother or his brother's. This is the same guy that brought the report to him that the gates were broken down and he began to weep over it. And so these people had already seen the problems in the city and he not only gives them a role by name, he gives them authority. If you read on further, it says that they were in charge of appointing other security guards. Okay, Everybody's guarded. They have roles of leadership and those leaders are supposed to appoint more people. They're supposed to get guards on the streets and in front of homes and every guard post. So you've got leaders, and then these leaders are giving out, they're delegating authority. And then lastly, the thing that you see in chapter 7, well, before I move on, he also made clear two things. He made their role clear. He said, look, this is when you're going to open and close the gates. Back uh, in the law, it had said that they would open the gates at dawn. And he said, look, it's not safe enough for that yet. We're not ready for that. You need to keep the gates closed until it gets warm in the day, until the sun gets up. We're not that far yet, okay? 
So he gives them really clear expectations for the roles that they were supposed to fill. And then he describes the qualifications for those roles. He talks about the reason that he appointed his brother into this role is because they feared God. They were a more faithful man and they feared God more than many. A couple points about those clear qualifications and clear roles and distinctions about what they were supposed to do. Um, God needs us as a people to define the work that needs to happen and then delegate authority through one another. We need people to step up into leadership roles in this church. We need people not only to see the problems, to say, I will take responsibility for the problems. And, then, and, and good leaders can do that. Okay? Good leaders see the, next, uh, they see the next milestone and they say, let's go towards that one. They don't just sit down when they pass the first milestone. They say, here's where we're going. And really great leaders... Don't just define where we need to go, but they bring others along for it. And they say, not only am I going to have the authority in this space and do these things and hold this responsibility, I need other people to do that. And the same thing is true within the context of the church. We need people to see where we're going and say, I'm going to step into that. And they don't just take the responsibility, they give it to others and they invite others into what God's doing here. That's the point we're at right now, okay? If anybody wanted to know where we're at as a church, this is the milestone we're at. We see a lot of work in front of us, and there's a lot of people who need to step into their God-given roles for where we're going in the future, and they don't just need to step into the roles. They need to say, hey, other people, come along with me. This is where we're going. They need to take that responsibility and give it out to others. And then the last thing in this chapter, Nehemiah looks at the people, and he's listening to God. It says that God puts this in his heart to count the people. Now, I didn't read through those names because y'all saw how I struggled with the few names, okay? I, I, I can't read all these old names, but, but what's important is it's all God's word, every single name there, every single number. And Nehemiah said it's really important, and he received this from God to both know and name who those people were. It was really important to him. The citizens that belonged to the city, they, they weren't just this kind of unknown mass of people that were like, who are they? We don't know who's come back. We don't know who that's left. Who's already arrived? Who's coming into the city? Where are they living? He's saying, God wants us to know where people are. They're known. They're named. Every family, every number. Some had come back from exile. Some were still missing. And the, the ultimate purpose of this is that God wants his people to be known and named. He doesn't want us to be this ambiguous blob of maybe people are here, maybe they're not. That's one of the reasons it's so important that we pursue membership here. We have a membership class coming up on March the 7th. And if you're interested, you can go to our website and respond for that membership class. And you can learn about what do we believe? What do we expect? What are the responsibilities that are associated with membership here? Okay, please do that. And there's a couple reasons for that. Throughout all of God's history, the people that belonged to him were known and named. In Acts, it says that they added to their number. That means that somebody had a number. And in Hebrews, it says that all the elders are going to one day give an account before God for how we shepherded you. That means I want to know who that is. I want to know who I'm answering for. And all the rest of the elders in this church wants to know who we're going to be answering to God for how we shepherded you. We want that. I think it's a reasonable thing that we would look at one another and just say, hey, I haven't seen them in a couple of weeks. I wonder where they're at. He wants us to be the kind of people where we cannot just belong in name only, but we know when someone's missing. We know where they're at. 
We know when their heart is drifting a little bit further and further away. Everyone has a part to play in this community. They have a name. They're known. And then he also names the sacrifices that they've made. He doesn't just know who they are in the numbers. He says, this person sacrificed for the sake of this work. These people gave generously. And he even names himself. He's like the governor. He gives like a thousand, he gives a thousand derricks of silver. It's like a humble way of saying, I contributed to the work too. Everyone was contributing. The fathers of the household. So there's got to be roles defined. There's got to be authority that are being, that's being distributed among God's people. And all of God's people have to be known and named so that we can see when you're missing and we can see the sacrifices that you're making and we can say yes and amen to all that God is accomplishing through his people. So... Before I move to the conclusion, God's community needs this kind of citizenship. We need this kind of citizenship where we know who we are and we know where the boundary lines are for God's people. We know who's shown back up. And it's really similar to where we're at right now. Situationally right now, we're in a place where there's people that are still scattered because of COVID. And there's some people that are back. And God's people were at a pivot pivotal moment in their history in this context too. Some people were back. Some people hadn't shown back up. And it was really important to say, who's with us? God placed that in Nehemiah's heart so that they could be named and known and that their sacrifices could be noted. And so now I want to move into what does this mean for us? Hopefully I've made some applications along the way. But the first thing is this, ultimately the work is completed. For everyone who's in Christ Jesus, it is finished. It's done. That's what Jesus declared on the cross. The work that you could not do for yourself has already been done. The thing that you could not accomplish in your weakness, he did on your behalf. The wrath that hung over you because of sin, Jesus said, I will take that upon myself. And for everyone who repents and believes, it is finished. We need only accept this work and grace that's been given to us through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And that is the very, very good news of the gospel. It is really good news that we can look at our lives and say, we are not responsible for the greatest things and the greatest successes that God himself has accomplished something that we could not accomplish on our own behalf. He's laid out the foundation for all other things in this, in this Christian life with the ultimate thing that he's chosen a people for himself to rescue and redeem for the sake of his name. And we get to enjoy the benefits of something we could not earn and could not deliver ourselves from. We get to gladly receive that gift. It has finished. It's done. The war is over. It's, the work has been accomplished. And here's the other part. For every believer, the finish line is the starting point. The primary question of your life is not what you're going to accomplish. It's what Christ has accomplished on your behalf, okay? That's the first question. But the second part is this, that there are 
things that God has planned for every person that belongs to him in advance. He's prepared works for you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, we are his workmanship. That means everyone who belongs to Christ. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means that there's mile markers in front of you. There are trailblazes in front of you that you have not yet seen. Don't just sit down because the work is done. Get up. And look ahead of you and see what Christ has prepared in advance. If you've come to a point of repentance and faith, praise God. The finished work of Jesus Christ is the starting point for your sanctification. It is the starting point for this road between here and glory. And here's the thing. The work that he accomplished in your salvation is still available to you in your sanctification. He gives every bit of grace. He's working together with you so that we can be ambassadors of of his grace. So note the milestones that have been behind you. See them. Celebrate them. Say, you know what? I've rounded some corners before. Anybody look back over your life and say, hey, there was a big before and after moment for me. Maybe some trial that you walked through where God proved his faithfulness to you. Maybe some dark place where he proved that you were not alone. And wherever it was, there was a before and after. You were walking in this direction and you rounded a corner. And what I want to tell you today is that there are more corners ahead of you. There's things that you can't imagine for yourself. There is more, there is more, there is more. There's more. There's more of Christ that you could know, more intimacy with him, more of his truth to know within his word. There is more of him available to you. So don't just sit down. Don't just give up. Don't just say, we finally made it. We did it. There is more that he's prepared in advance for you that is beyond what you could ask, think, or imagine, what Kim would say in this morning. He's able, and that means that he's going to call you to things that you are not able to do. There's things he's inviting you into that you'd say, I do not have the skill, I do not have the expertise, I do not have the strength, I do not have the might. There are relationships right now. There are marriages in this room that God has invited you to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And you feel the limitations of your own strength. There are, there are parents in this room that feel the limitations of their own strength. They feel the limitations of their ability to control the future, to control what's happening at your job. You feel that limitation. And what God is inviting us into is to step into that future grace that he's calling us into. This is what I know. It is impossible to please God without faith. I know that that is true. And he's inviting us not only to trust in Christ for our salvation, but to trust in him for future grace, that whatever he invites us into, he'll give us the grace to be his ambassador in that space. And I want to conclude with this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I love this verse. It declares something that we could not do on our behalf. For our sake, I'm sorry, verse 20. Does it have that? There it is. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. He is making his appeal to the world through us and to our kids, through us, to our spouse. He's making this appeal through us to the world to see who he is, to delight in who he is, to know him as he is. He's making that kind of appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And then he declares something we could not do for ourselves in verse 21. 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's a tongue twister, but here's what it means. That there's something that you could not do for yourself and Christ took it on himself. Now, the interesting thing is the very next verse, okay? The very next verse is declaring that you're ambassadors and there's things that you couldn't do. And the next verse in chapter 6 says this, working together with him then. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is the appeal. You get to participate with the impossible. You get an opportunity to participate with the impossible things. There are impossible things that God is doing in this world, and he's saying, I'd like for you to join me. (laughs) Come be part of it. You couldn't do it on your own even if you tried the hardest that you could ever try. But I can do it through you. And I want you to work together with me as I reconcile all things to my great design and purposes in the world. And for some of you, you're looking at the world going, I cannot see the next marker, okay? Maybe you've been sitting down for a long time. It feels dark. I talked about uh, the AT at the beginning, the Appalachian Trail. Um, And because it's Valentine's Day, I want to tell you a story about me and my wife on the Appalachian Trail. It's about year four for us in marriage. And I decided it'd be very romantic for us to do a little short hike, you know, two miles, a little section hike on the AT. And I wanted to go up to this pinnacle where we could see the sunset and it was going to be gorgeous. It was just going to be the, I had it really built up in my mind, okay? This is a picture where we're going. This is Wesser Bald. And when you get to the top of this thing, you can see 360 degrees. And, and I mean, it is just gorgeous. It's breathtaking. And I thought, let's get there by sunset, and it's, so, it's, it's our anniversary, it's the middle, it's 1st of July. We get there, and the, the days are long, and so it's like late, it's getting close to 8 o'clock, and we're walking two miles in, I'm like, baby, this is going to be great, you're going to love this place. And about halfway up the mountain, she says, Nate, did you bring a flashlight? I'm like, no, I didn't, we'll be fine. My eyes adjust in the dark, Okay. <laughs> They always adjust in the dark. I'm, this is going to be great, which is my motto. Uh, it's going to be great, okay? So we get to the top, and I'm going to tell you, it wasn't, a, we were underwhelmed with the sunset because there's like a fog moving in. And we're like, well, you know what? We came, we saw it. And about, yeah, I don't know, like an eighth of a mile into the way back, it gets dark, and I mean like a fog came in on the mountain and I could not count my fingers in front of me dark, okay? I could not see any blazes on the trail, okay? And my wife was less than blessed with this great adventure. (laughs) I was less than blessed. I was trying to eat my words and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And basically she's holding on to the back of my shirt while I am crunch, crunch, packed, that's packed, that's crunchy, and I would take one step forward. And and we did two miles like that, falling down the mountain. I mean, it was rough. It was awful. It was a while before things were okay, all right? (laughs) It was a long while before things were okay. And I just want to acknowledge that sometimes the mile markers that you're passing, you cannot see. You don't know what they are. And it feels like you've been in darkness for a really long time. And I know that there's people like that in this room. 
and you feel like, am I even on the path? Crunch, crunch, it's a little packed here, and you take the next little inch forward. Sometimes you're falling down, and sometimes you're falling to the wayside. And what I want to tell you is this, that there's grace that's sufficient for you. Take the very next step. Take the next step. And one day you're going to look back and see where God has brought you from. There's going to be mile markers that you never even noticed. There's going to be corners that you've already passed over. There's going to be things that you see in the future that you didn't even know that you had learned. And so I, I give you that as a hope because there is, there is a future for God's people. And it is hopeful and bright. And some days it may be dark until the day we see his face. It may be dark until he makes all things new and we're invited to see him face to face. But I promise you, he has grace for the next step. Just take it. Walk in his works that he's prepared for you. There's grace that's sufficient for you. Let me pray for you in that. Jesus, thank you for your word today. I pray that it would be sealed in our hearts. so grateful that the work has been accomplished, that it's completed, that there are things that I could not do for myself that you just overwhelmingly in your mercy and loving kindness and goodness that you did for me, I could not do for myself. And so I give you praise, I give you thanks, and in this story of Nehemiah, I pray that you'd give us grace for what lies ahead. Give us a vision of this future that you have for us. Pray that you'd put things in our heart like the way that you put this in Nehemiah's heart, that God's people would be named and known. I pray that you would do that among us, that we would step into those roles, that we'd step into the responsibilities, that we'd step into the authority that you've dispersed among this people, and that we would walk in faithfulness, even when the path seems really dark, believing that there are milestones ahead of us that we have not yet reached that it's grace that brought us safe this far and it's grace that will lead us home. And we trust that. By your name and your power, I pray this over this people, Jesus. Amen.